Grab your Bibles, please, and open them to Romans chapter 8. That's where we're going to be this morning, Romans chapter 8. Well, we have two more weeks left in Romans chapter 8, and now we are coming to the conclusion. Paul's going to wrap up what he's been saying so far in this chapter from verses 31 to 39. The big point of Romans 8, as we've studied this over the past few weeks, we've seen that the big point that Paul's trying to convey to the church is assurance. He wants Christians to be assured of who they are in Christ. He wants Christians to be assured of their safety, of their security in the gospel. And in a bid to do that, what he has done in this chapter is the Apostle Paul has taken the two big threats that we often face to our assurance in the gospel. Two big threats that we often uh, face as Christians. Sin and suffering. Those are two things that make us doubt the gospel. Two things that make us doubt whether or not we really are saved. Two things that make us doubt whether or not God really does love us. That's why Romans 8, I think it's fair to say Romans 8's had a big impact on us as a church. Uh, There's been a lot of conversation uh, around this chapter, a lot of chat about it. I know certainly for me personally, it's had a big impact because this is real. This is raw, real, and it resonates with what we feel today as Christians. So I hope really um, that as we've looked at this, we as a church will be feeling more eternally secure in the gospel of Jesus. Now we're coming to the conclusion. We're going to just look at four verses this morning from verses 31 to 34. And I want us to bear in mind those two threats to our assurance, sin, suffering, because I think Paul again is going to deal with them as part of his conclusion here. And as we read this, just note the tone Note the the way that Paul is writing here, the passion, the excitement, and the boldness of what he says. Paul has just spoke some amazing truths in this chapter, and as he is soaring on the assurance that these truths bring, he writes these words, verse 31, Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let's pray before we look at these amazing verses. Father, great gospel truths are contained in these four little verses. Truths that if we really believed and got hold of would radically change our lives. Father, I pray that today as we look at these things which are often so familiar to us that we would see them afresh. And so, Lord, I I'm aware of my inadequacies to do this. And we pray, Father, that you would send your Holy Spirit this morning to open our eyes to these truths, to have them bear upon us. Father, we pray that your Spirit 
would take these words and would pierce our heart with them. And may we leave this morning saying that Jesus is enough. We pray this in his name, Father. Amen. Um, when I was in school in Dundee, I'm actually originally from Dundee. Uh, I don't know if you can tell by the accent. It's kind of gone a little bit since I've been in Edinburgh. Um, but I am starting to pronounce my T's a lot better since being a part of this church. Um, no doubt somebody will pick me up on that and I'll forget to do it. But I was in school in Dundee. I'm from Dundee originally. And when I was in school there, there were certain kids in my year that you simply would not mess with. You would not go near them. And the reason you wouldn't mess with them is because you knew where they came from. You knew their family. So there was always that one kid whose dad was so-and-so, and nobody could touch him because everyone knew who his father was. And he could walk around the school playground confident, walk around boasting and who he was because he was completely safe because of his family. Well, in these verses, that's what Paul's doing. Paul is boasting about his security and confidence. And the reason he can make such a bold boast is because of God, his heavenly father. I've called these verses this morning the wonderful boast of Christian assurance. We often think of boasting as a negative thing. To be honest, it it often is a negative thing because it's about, uh, it's kind of a self-righteous thing. But the boast here, the boast of Christian assurance, is not a boast in ourselves, but a boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus' cross is what lies at the heart of these verses. So my aim this morning, as we look at these four verses, is that we would leave here boasting in the cross. That even in the midst of battles that we face with our sinful nature or the anguish that we have faced in suffering and hardships, we would leave here assured of the eternal love and safety of God our Father. So to that end, two simple yet profound points from this passage. Firstly, if God is for us, no one can be against us. Secondly, If God has justified us, no one can condemn us. So firstly then, if God is for us, no one can be against us. Paul begins by posing his first of six rhetorical questions in this conclusion. He says, what then shall we say to these things? What things is he talking about? Well, it could be uh, the whole of Romans chapter 8 that we've seen. It could be the section that Paul actually begun way back in Romans chapter 5 up until this moment. Uh, But more likely than not, he is making a direct reference to what he has just said before in verses 28 to 30. Let me just look at those verses with me. Uh, Paul writes this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And Paul writes this, one preacher has called this the golden chain of salvation. Verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So if you're here today as a Christian, this is true of you. God predestined you. That is before God laid the foundations of the world itself, God chose you to be saved in Christ. 
God has called you. It's not that you came to God. You didn't work it out. You didn't earn your salvation. You didn't somehow come to him. He called you. He brought you into himself. He has justified you. God himself has made you right, removed your sin by the blood of his son, Jesus, and declared you righteous. And then staggeringly, Paul writes, he glorified you. He has raised you up with Christ and seated you with him so that you can say, Jesus is my brother, God is my father, and now I am an heir to the heavenly estate that he owns. Four words, all in the past tense, all about the initiating power of God. He predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. It's done, it's unchangeable, it's unshakable, it's absolutely guaranteed. So Paul writes, what more can I say on top of that? What can you say after something like that? What can you say when you've already said everything? Well, the answer is, you say it again, but you say it a different way. Why? Because we need to hear it again. We need to hear it every day because what he is talking about is of infinite worth and value. You never tire of it. The gospel of Jesus, the assurance that the gospel brings, it's not some uh, two-dimensional flat piece of information that you hear once and then that's it. It's more like a beautiful, multifaceted diamond that we can rotate and see how many different ways the light hits off it. Paul's passion is evident. What else can I say? It's so wonderful. I need to say it again. I need to phrase it again. Turn the diamond. See a different way that the light hits off this great and glorious truth. So he writes this. If God is for us, who can be against us. God is for you as a Christian. It kind of makes sense in the light of verse 30, the one who predestined, called, justified, glorified you, is for you. And if he is for you, who could possibly be against you? Just think how we try and answer that question. Okay, if God is for us, who could be against us? Who's against us as Christians? Well, lots of people are. Lots of people are against us. Paul's writing to Christians who, who are struggling with assurance because they're suffering. People are persecuting them. Some of us here may indeed be feeling that, that there is opposition, there is hostility that we are facing. There's brokenness and family strife in your life. There's hurt, there's tears, there's feelings of, of despair and isolation and rejection. If God is for us, who can be against us? It wasn't too long ago, a few weeks ago, when 21 Egyptian men were brought out to a beach in Libya and publicly beheaded by Islamic fundamentalists. Real men are brothers in Christ today with real families and real jobs and real names and then we come to Romans 8.32, if God is for us, who can be against us? Is Paul naive? Who can be against us? I don't think so. No one knew the pain of persecution for Jesus' sake like Paul did. What Paul's saying here is that if God is for you, 
no one can ever successfully be against you. No one can ever successfully be against you. The world, the flesh, the devil, they will assault the Christian at any given opportunity, but never, ever to any avail. Even even the wickedness of this world, even the horror and the suffering and the pain and the anguish, even the brutality that we ourselves may face is under the sovereign control of a loving Father and is being used for our ultimate good. That's what Paul says in Romans 8.28. All things, good and bad, are being used for our ultimate good. What about what Joseph says to his brothers way back in Genesis chapter 50? Remember the Joseph story? It's not like the uh, camp Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. It's a brutal, horrible story. Joseph was, his brothers tried to kill him. They threw him in a pit. He was sold into slavery. And when he stands before his brothers, at the end of that narrative, he says to them in Genesis 50, what you meant for evil, God has used for good. God is for us. Nothing can be against us. Even if they cut off your head, you will be with Christ in glory. That's why Paul says, verse 37, Romans 8, that amidst our sufferings, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now hold on, we may think. Is this... Is this just wishful thinking? Is this just a a way of trying to make sense of something in which there is no sense, trying to make sense of, of the randomness of suffering and the brokenness of humanity? How can we really know that that's true? How can I know Romans 8, 28 is really true when I'm in great pain and anguish? Well, listen to the logic of verse 32. Someone has called this the sound logic of heaven. See, if you follow Jesus and you doubt that he is really for you, given what you've experienced, this is what Paul writes to you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, notice the language. God gave his own son. His own son. Wasn't just anyone was his one and only son. God gave him up. The one whom he had loved perfectly for eternity. He gave him up for us. Paul's talking about the cross here. He's talking about the moment that Jesus was given up to the cruel torment of crucifixion. Who handed Jesus over? Not, not so much Pontius Pilate, not Herod, not Judas, not even the Pharisees or the Jews. Oh, yes, to some degree they did, but they have no authority over the Son of God. First and foremost, Jesus was handed over to the cruel barbarity of the cross by his Father. That's why he was there, because the Father wanted him to be there. And that's why Jesus chose to be there. You see, the suffering Jesus faced on the cross as he's hanging there, humiliated, naked, beaten, 
tortured, facing the rejection and facing wave upon wave of the divine wrath of God for the sins of humanity, he faced because God gave him up for it. Why? Because that's what God had to do to save us. Romans 5, verse 8, this is how we know that God loved us. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you think, do you think that would have been easy for the father to give up his son. There's a reason the Bible uses this language to describe the relationship between, in the Trinity of father and son. It's powerful relational language. Do you think that would have been easy? You see, the more precious something is, the more costly something is, the more you love something, the harder it is to give up. You know, some of, some of you here may be parents, It would be difficult to give up your house or your car for somebody. That would be hard. Imagine trying to give up your own child for somebody. Not just anybody, but somebody who would hate you and want nothing to do with you. Giving up your own son or daughter for them. And yet that is what the cross is all about. That's what God did for us. If we are to be saved, that has to happen. He has to give up his own son. I was listening to an American preacher called John Piper. He's got a great series of sermons we've been recommending on Romans 8. Uh, and he, uh, he has this preaching lab thing uh, that he calls it on Romans 8. And he mentioned something interesting that kind of stuck with me. He said, what do you think the biggest obstacle to our salvation was? Was it our sin? Was it God's anger? He says the biggest obstacle to our salvation was the fact that God loves his son. And if we are to be saved, if all that wretched sin in our life that is worthy of eternal damnation is to be taken from us so that we could be declared righteous, then he has to take that whom he loves the most in the entire universe, whom he has loved from all eternity, and give him over to be hung up like a piece of meat and tortured by the wickedness of human, sinful, human sin and suffer under the weight of divine wrath. That was the hardest and the most costly thing about our salvation. God did it. And then we dare to think, God can't be for me because I can't get my car started this morning because I've had a bad week, because my relationships are struggling. I can't get that job I want. Do you see how that sounds against the backdrop of the cross? He gave you his son. And because that's true, that means God is for you every single second of every single day. There is not a moment in your life as a Christian where God is not for you. It doesn't matter whether you've had a good quiet time or whether you feel more closer to God. God is always for you if you trust Jesus. Always. There is nothing greater he can give us to assure us that that's true. And if he can give us Christ, Paul says, if he can give us that, the greatest thing he has, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? 
doesn't mean if you, if you got Jesus, you can get whatever you want, but it does mean Romans 8 verse 17. That we are heirs through suffering to God's heavenly estate. It does mean Romans 8 28, that God works for the good of all those who love him. The suffering we face now is being used by God for our ultimate good. You see, if God can, can make, it's the logic of heaven, if God can make the ultimate good, which is our salvation, come out of the ultimate act of evil, which is the crucifixion of his son, then surely he could do that with the sufferings in our life. And when we are in those dark moments, we must cry out those pains to God. Sometimes, sometimes we can't cry out because we just don't know what to say. But even then, we're told in Romans 8, we're still linked with God. There's no separation. Even then, the Spirit intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. But when we do cry, we must also bring to our minds the logic of heaven. And we can boast the bold boast of the cross that Paul writes here through tears and pain. If God is for me, you cannot touch me. I'm in the safest hands possible and I know that that's true because he gave me his son. It's the first boast. And Paul moves on secondly, the second boast. If God has justified us, no one can condemn us. Let's read verse 33 and 34 again. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What Paul's doing here now is he takes the Christian and he fast forwards them to that final day, the day of judgment. The day when every human being that has been created by God will stand before the throne of God and be judged because he is the judge of humanity. And Paul takes us to that day and he says, look, this is what's going to happen to you on that day. No condemnation, not guilty. No matter what you've done in life, he takes us forward to the certainty of what's happening at the end so that we can be assured now. When I was in Aberdeen, I did um, uh, the relay program with an organization called UCCF. And uh, when I was doing that program, I got really into the TV series 24. Um, and so I had quite a lot of the box sets of 24. And there was a girl who was doing relay with me. Uh, and I wanted her to get into it too because it's great. Um, so I gave her uh, one of the box sets of 24. But the problem is I've got a really bad habit of doing something that annoys a lot of people. I tend to put the wrong discs in the wrong place and in the wrong order. So what I'd done is I'd actually put the last season in the first sort of box of 24. So when she started watching it, she was really confused because she was watching the final four episodes. She saw the end of it. And it meant that when she actually did come back to, why she watched all four, I don't know. But when she did come back to watching the whole thing, she knew what was going to happen. And that's kind of ruins a lot of 24 because the TV show is built upon the premise that at the end of each episode, there's a cliffhanger. You don't know what's going to happen. But she'd already seen the end. She knew that Jack Bauer didn't die. 
that he overthrew the terrorists. I'm sorry if that's ruined it for you. Uh, It's pretty obvious. But she knew that was going to happen. So that every time she was watching it, when there's a cliffhanger, she's like, well, I know the ending. Even though I don't know what's coming up in the next episodes, I know what's going to happen at the end. And Paul's saying that here. He's like, look, you know the end. Let me show you what's going to happen at the end of your life. You don't know what's going to happen in between, what, what may come your way, how long it is, but you do know that God will declare you not guilty. That is a guarantee. You do know that God will say no condemnation. Who is going to bring a charge against you then? Who could bring a charge against God's elect? Again, think how we'd answer that. Just like the first point, who's going to charge us if we're Christians? Well, lots of people. Others may charge us. Satan brings a charge against us. That's why he's called in the Bible the accuser. Perhaps more often than not, our own conscience brings a charge against us. When we reflect on our sins, don't we often condemn ourselves? There's no way God could love me. There's no way God could be for me after what I did last weekend, after what I did last night. But again, like the previous point, Paul is saying that regardless of these charges, there can be no successful charge brought against you and me. Not others, not Satan, not our sinful nature. Why? Because it is God who has declared us righteous. And see how he says that? It is God who justifies. He could have said, we've been justified. That would have been fine, but he doesn't. The emphasis he places here is on the fact that this is God's initiating work. It is God himself, the judge, who has declared that you are right and perfect. This section has all the language of a courtroom. The day when we die, we'll be brought before God to give an account for our lives. God is the right and true judge of humanity, but unlike judges in courtrooms today. God's not some neutral observer. You see, God is also the most offended party. Whenever we do something wrong, any form of wickedness and evil is first and foremost a direct affront to his goodness. So he is the one who's hurt the most. He is the one that we have injured the most with our sin. But God, the judge, the one whom we've hurt, the one who has the right to bring a charge against us says no condemnation. Not because of us, but again, because of the cross. He has pronounced not guilty because Jesus has taken the punishment as he was crucified. That's done. That's guaranteed. Jesus guaranteed that verdict at his death when he cried out these three words, it is finished. That's true of you here today. If you're a Christian, perhaps you think, I'm not a very good Christian. No matter what you've done, no matter how bad, no matter how ravaged with guilt or how utterly unworthy you feel of God's grace, no condemnation is the verdict. But we may think, well, I know that that's true in my head, but I don't feel that. I don't feel like I'm right with God. I don't feel righteous. And the answer is, well, of course you don't feel righteous. 
the righteousness that you need for God to accept you and declare you not condemned is not found in you yourself, but is seated right now at the right hand of God in the person of Jesus Christ. You feel your sin. It's yours. Of course you do. That's why you feel it. You don't feel your righteousness because your righteousness is not yours. It's Jesus' righteousness. You don't feel justified because it's not you who justifies. It's God. It's not something you feel. It's like being married or, or you know, being a year older. You don't necessarily feel that, but it's still true. It's a verdict that has been proclaimed on you. And if God has done it, do we really think that we can undo that? That somehow our sin will be greater than God's righteous verdict upon us? That somehow our sin will be greater than the sufficiency of what his son has done on the cross? This is why, to paraphrase Luther, this is why when Satan does throw our sins in our face and says, you deserve death, when Satan does throw our sins in our face and says, you deserve hell and judgment, we can say with all confidence, yes, I do deserve those things. But God has justified me. What his son has done was perfect and sufficient enough to remove his anger from me. Therefore, Satan, your charge has no hold on me. How do we know that's true? Again, we've got to do what Paul does. And apply the logic of heaven. Verse 34. Three reasons we can be confident to boast in this way that we are not condemned. One, Christ Jesus who has died. His death on the cross was absolutely and totally sufficient to deal with our sins, both past, present, and future. It was enough. Christ Jesus has died. The penalty has been paid. Second reason, Christ Jesus was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Jesus' resurrection shows us the deal was sealed. He has risen and conquered. Death itself could not hold him. Sin has been defeated. And the proof of that is seen in the fact that right now Jesus is alive. He lives right now in heaven. Right at the right hand of God is a certainty for our assurance. And then thirdly, incredibly, Paul writes, not only did he die, not only did he rise, to show us there's no condemnation. But thirdly, Christ Jesus indeed is interceding for us. See, the assurance we need that there is no condemnation for us as Christians is not only seen in Jesus' past work, in his death and his resurrection, but is also seen in Jesus' present work. It's seen in what Christ is doing for us right now. And what is that? He is interceding for us. He is representing us on behalf of of ourselves to God. Do you know that Jesus is praying for you? You know, it's often comforting when you're going through hard times to, um, when somebody in church comes up and says, you know, I've been praying for you. It's a comforting thing to hear that. You know that Jesus prays for us? 
If you want to know what that looks like, look at John 17. Brings our cause to the Father right now. Jesus is there now as God, with God, speaking to God on our behalf. Let me just wrap all this up by saying, by saying this. Life is chaotic, tumultuous, it's difficult. It may be okay just now, but it's never always going to be like that. It's always changing. And no matter who you are, what you believe, think you can say that. There's nothing really that's, that's lasting or substantial enough to really make us feel permanently secure. Nothing. But Paul is showing all of us here today that here is a rock that is found in the good news of Jesus' salvation. Look, I know as Christians we struggle to say these boasts. We struggle to, to, to feel this because suffering and guilt make us feel so distant from God and his goodness. And that's where we have to apply the sound logic of heaven. When we do that, we will have a rock of assurance that helps us through the difficulties of life and the brokenness of our human nature and brings us at last into the eternal rest of our Father. But I want to draw your attention to a very important word in verse 31. It's the word if. If God is for you, then this is true. And we need to know that because that means that if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, then the opposite's true. God is against you. And I cannot think of anything more terrifying than that. To have God against you. There's literally nothing worse. And yet I have to say it because it's true. The weight of God's anger will be directed against you. And if, and if that's true and you come before him on the day of judgment and you try to appeal to yourself, to your good life and your good works, God will charge you. God will condemn you. There is no safety, there is no salvation, there is no security outside the cross of Jesus Christ. You have to know that. And let me use these four verses then as an appeal to you this morning. Come to Jesus. Just ask him for forgiveness. Come to Jesus and trust in him. And verse 31 to 34 will be true of you. No matter what's happening in your life, you will be able to say, God is for me. Who could be against me? No matter what you've done in life, you can say, God has justified me. Who can condemn me? Here is a bedrock of security and blessed assurance amidst the ever-changing chaos of life. Oh, to be found in Christ, it is such a wonderful thing. 
to have that assurance, to have that safety. How can we be separated from such love? This is what Paul's going to go on and talk about. All this is just driving him to the dramatic conclusion at the end of this chapter where he talks about the inseparable love of Christ shown to us. Such safety, such security. When the Christian stands before God on the day of judgment, we dare not appeal to our good works or good life. Our only appeal is the cross of Jesus. The basis for all assurance and acceptance is in the cross of Jesus, our Savior, the one given to us to save us, the one who died, who was raised to life, and even now intercedes for us. What a joy and a liberation it is to sing with the hymn writer these words, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. That is the wonderful boast of Christian assurance. Let's pray. Father, such great truths. And Lord, we often fail to believe them. We often fail to listen to them. And so, Lord, bring these truths to bear upon us this morning. Pray, Father, we'd leave here boasting in the cross of Jesus, not in ourselves not in anything that we've done, but boasting in the finished and sufficient and complete work that Jesus did as he died on that cross. Father, may that motivate us to tell others so that they can be part of this, to have that security, that joy, and that freedom. Father, may we run to you. Father, may we, with all sincerity, know these truths so that we can say, Jesus, you are enough. You are all that we need. Lord, may these truths cause us to bring glory to your name this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.